Welcome to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. I'm your co-host, Ken Cameron, and I'm here with our regular co-host, Russell Stratton. Hi, nice to be with you. And uh, today we've got, um, well, so something a little bit different. We've been running this, uh, like a competition in some ways, where we've asked people to send in their worst boss stories. So we have had a number of our listeners and contributors who have sent in their um, worst boss stories, many of which have asked to remain anonymous, um, which probably because they might still be working for the person. So we will um, make sure we honour that. But I would like to thank everybody who sent in a story, um, specifically those that were happy to be named uh, JT, Heidi, uh, Sean, and Dave. So thank you to everybody who sent a story in today. And uh, Ken, I think you were going to um, take us through these and then we were going to sort of talk about what we thought with some of these terrible bosses that our uh, colleagues have got. Absolutely. I thought that I would play the Alex Trebek role of being our MC, and you would be our guest contestant who will be able to kind of respond to those. Because I, I, I really noticed, Russell, that you have such a wide uh, and diverse work experience and background that I think you can comment on many of these stories that come from a number of different industries. And I'd really like to hear some of your feedback on some of these. And um It'll be really useful to hear uh, what you have to say on some of these. So why don't I read them to you, Russell? And um, and then also we'll invite our listeners. If there's anything that triggers your memories or that relates to a story that you've had, or or even better, if you can get one of those moments where you're like, oh, I've got one even better than that, then we're going to invite you to also reach out to us because we'll do another round of these worst boss stories in the future. But here we go, Russell. Let's hear our first story. Comes from an anonymous reader who said that when they were talking to their boss during a year-end appraisal, they asked for a clarification of some feedback that they received. And they were told by their boss, quote, I don't have to explain myself to you. I'm your boss. So here we have a boss who feels that they don't even have to explain themselves or even even elaborate on any of the feedback. What's your gut instinct and your your first response to that, Russell? Well, the first one is, I think I've had that effing boss myself. (laughs) That sounds all too chillingly familiar. Um, I think there's a couple of things that come to mind for me on this, Ken, is is one, it's the idea of these, um, your annual feedback reviews, as you say, and, you know, We've had the conversation before about people being able to have, you know, regular feedback with people on an ongoing basis throughout the year, not just wait for this at the year end to have to sort of download to people uh, the good or bad news using the dreaded um, shit sandwich that we've talked about before. Um, So I think part of the problem with this is it's that year end. Um, And the other part is that you've, so it doesn't allow you to sort of build up this dialogue throughout the year, but it's also this part in the idea that I, I don't have to explain myself to you, I'm your boss. Um, and I think what it's people confusing the idea that as somebody's uh, line manager, yes, you are able to ask people to undertake certain tasks, as long as there used to be uh, phrasing job descriptions that used to sort of say miscellaneous tasks as, a, as assigned by line management. And as long as it was legal, um, then it was okay to be asked to, asked to do it. But people sometimes confuse that with the idea that they don't have to explain themselves to people. And as we've, you know, you and I have spoken about before with Simon Sinek's book about, you know, start with why. And and I've always said to people, you know, uh, groups I've worked with recently, you know, it's the 21st century question. 
you have to be explained to people why. Why do they need to be doing this? Why is this important? Well, why is this particular piece of feedback important? And if you can't do that, then you're not going to get people on board and you're not going to build, build engagement. So I think you've got a boss here who thinks, I don't have to explain the why. You just have to do what I tell you to do. And if it's anybody like the person that I used to work for, um, it was because you couldn't explain the why. Yeah, it was just like, well, you have to do it because you have to do it. And as we probably both know, and our listeners probably know, that only gets you so far in, in modern modern management. You know, you need to be able to explain to people and be able to have a dialogue with them about why you need them to stack the shelves in that particular way or why you need them to do the project report in that particular way. And if they understand the why, they're more likely to buy into it and then you get less butting heads. I agree, Russell. It happened to me once early in my career. I was a young theater practitioner and I had been working for the Calgary Children's Festival. And so I was doing, we were doing a turnaround at one event at the Jack Singer Concert Hall where it was being converted from one event to another. And the it, it had something to do with the, uh, we had to put, we had either, we had to move a bunch of uh, orchestra chairs. And so the, I was, uh, and I was just really just filling in. I was actually office staff in that role, but they needed extra bodies on the floor. So I grab my work boots and I grab my shirt and off I go. And I'm working with somebody who's a member of the stagecraft union. So this is the IATSE union. And they're like, okay, come with me. We're going to move these. And, you know, we, they, we were, they, there was something, something struck me about what we we're doing is kind of strange. And I said, why are we moving these from here to here? Like we're moving them from, from an area where they seem useful to an area where they're really unuseful. And the, the gentleman who was a, um, uh, I, I think calling him a gentleman is, is certainly a high praise. It is certainly, as you'll hear, but he literally was somebody who'd been in the in the tradecraft union for so long that he was the typical jaded stagehand. And he literally turned to me and said, stop asking questions and just follow orders like a good little Nazi. Mm. And what nice. I discovered was that the reason we were moving the orchestra chairs from the front of the from the back of the stage to the apron of the stage so they could lower the stage and move the chairs into storage underneath the stage, which was actually a really cool thing because I got to ride the stage as the as the elevator, it's called, took it down a level. And then I was able to put these things uh, under the stage. And as a young, eager uh, uh, theater person, I was super impressed by this and really engaged by it. But all of that engagement was sucked out of me by the attitude of the old, grizzled stagehand. Well, that's a great example, Ken. And actually, anybody that knows you would realize it's probably the least Nazi-like individual that you could come across as yourself. So <laughs> obviously, the guy um, hadn't taken any, any, any attempt to get to know you at all. <laughs> well, but he probably did pick up right away that I don't follow orders well. He clearly, like, that's just where, that's where he went to right away. And he wasn't wrong, we would say. Let's move on to our next uh, bad boss submission from one of our listeners. So this uh, person was working in retail. And this person, again, will, will not only will we disguise the person's name, we'll even disguise their gender. So this person um, said that when working in a retail situation, if the boss didn't like how the display looked, then he would throw items from the display at the staff in the store. And now uh, this person doesn't say whether the store was open with customers in it at this time, but clearly this is uh, this is somebody who's throwing things at, at their staff. 
What's your hit on that, Russell? <laughs> well, uh, well the, the, uh, our colleague who um, who told that story actually t- it told it to me verbally. So they sort of a little expansion on this that the store was at it would be open. It was quite a regular thing, um, and their boss basically had temper tantrums. And this was one example of how they how they would do it if something wasn't done the way they liked it. And on this particular occasion, the store was open. There were a few customers early in the morning who were in the store. And and this individual is just basically throwing things at one or two members of staff while screaming at them because it hadn't been done exactly the way that they had wanted it done. Um, one interesting point here is they hadn't actually told people how they wanted it done, so they just left them to do it. And then when they didn't do it, you know, because of course, you know, as we know, uh, pe- people are not psychic; they don't aren't able to just you know look at you and be able to sort of download your thoughts into their head without you saying anything. So they uh, they didn't know exactly what he, he did want them to do, um, and and then just to just um, say a tantrum to which was eventually stopped. Because here the individual was telling me this, you know, was not that particularly uh, been in the organisation that long, and worked for them very much. So we're still in that. I'm not sure how much I can push back to my boss here. This person's my boss, so you know, authority figure. I don't want to get fired. You know, I could really do with the job. Um, but another coworker who ha- had been um, around a little bit longer just basically looked at the at it, this individual at the end of this you know tirade from the manager and just said, you know. How effing old are you? You know, I've got toddlers that do this. And and got the manager to pick the stuff up. And they said this was the most wonderful thing because um, the woman who was challenging him just stood there with, with her arms <laughs> folded and the, the, the sort of boss went around picking up the various things that he'd originally been throwing at people and put them back on the shelf. Um, and interestingly, he didn't do it again afterwards. But it was... It was the, so just a little bit of ex- expansion there, but what it showed is just somebody who didn't put the work in up front to explain to people what they needed to do. Then when it didn't go the way they suddenly now thought they wanted it, just behaved in one unprofessional, unethical manner um, and, and quite like a two-year-old, um, and then had somebody, somebody had to stand up to them. <clears throat> and the concern would be is what happens if nobody stands up to them? Does this person continue because they'll keep on doing it and keep on behaving in these fairly outrageous ways without having anybody uh, challenge them because they're the boss, they have the yeah, you know, yay or nay over hiring and firing. Um, but it took one of their uh, more experienced employees to <laughs> say, I'm not having that. And um, yeah, the sight of the manager going back and having to pick up all the things that he'd just thrown at everybody. And you know, so it was, uh, people were stifling a laugh, as you can imagine. Customers were just standing there open mouth as they wondered what was going on. And it's interesting that when, as you give us more detail on that story, Russell, it seems to indicate that by challenging the poor behavior, by by pushing back upwards, the the behavior stopped. And you seem to indicate that it didn't happen again in the future, or at least that particular manifestation of that kind of behavior didn't happen again. Uh, so it, it had some positive benefits, some positive effects. Yeah, I think so. And again, you know, as we talk about in the book and we've talked about in our workshops and on previous podcasts, you know, you know, the, the person isn't necessarily the behavior a lot of the time. You know, you can separate the behavior from the person. And, you know, the, the, the boss may not have been a terribly bad person. He just had certain behavioral traits that weren't professional um, and were certainly unhelpful to, to the people that worked with them. Um, 
but it required somebody to actually have that challenging conversation with them. And in this case, it was a member of staff challenging upwards. And if you know, you know one of the workshops we do is when we look at helping people to challenge those in a more um, uh, a position of authority above them, um, to, to say no, that that's not on, and we're and we're, and we're not going to stand for that type of bull, you know, verging on bullying type behaviour. Um, but yeah, once the behaviour was challenged, because they weren't challenging his authority, they were challenging his behaviour, and I think that was a that was probably the the key to success. It was also not clear from the story, although you may be able to give us some more in the in the background, is whether or not was this a regular thing, or was this boss just having a bad day. So you can go either way. I mean, certainly a bad day does not excuse bad behavior. But I do recall that in one of the workplaces where I worked at, the One Yellow Rabbit Performance Theater, they had a rule on any one of the plays that we worked on. They kind of said, everyone is allowed one bad day. One day in which they can either be an asshole or they can throw a temper tantrum or they can be cranky. But so you're allowed one bad day, but only one. You know, so it and I thought that was a really great way to approach it. And given that that ensemble has been together for uh, over 30 years now, it's probably verging on uh, 35, if not 40 years. It's clearly been one of the several rules that have kept that group together all this time. Yeah, and, and that's a great point, Ken. And I like the idea of giving people permission that, you know, occasionally we do have bad days. Even you and I, such saintly characters as we are do occasionally have bad days. And it's one of the things that, you know, we've talked about before and we talk about with some um, management groups is that, you know, well, is, 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 so a manager can never shout at anybody. So, well, you know, a manager's entitled to have a bad day the same way as anybody else. And a cold, angry blast from somebody um, over maybe a mistake and it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a cause the problem. And, you know, that's um, permissible, I think. It's if it becomes... That's all you ever do. And I think this individual, I don't know, you know the full ins and outs of everything about them, but certainly from what I was being told was this wasn't an unusual occurrence. This was whenever this person felt under under pressure or got annoyed, they tended to like throw their you know stuffy out of the crib, and that was just how they behaved. So it wasn't like you know very occasionally you'd see them lose their temper. But the other time that they were most reason, this was like fairly regularly every time that something they didn't like happened and they weren't able to um, have a conversation with somebody and explain in perhaps strong terms as we encourage people in our workshops, give them a framework to explain how do you address an issue with somebody. They would just they would just scream and, you know, ah, like this, and throw, which was it was just counterproductive because their staff just looked at them and thought that they were crazy. Well, let's let's look at an, another story. Here's our third story. So this is a story about uh, uh, f- from a situation again anonymized, but this is in more of an office setting, from the sounds of it, than it is in a retail setting. So in this instance, um, the employee who's who's writing to us has phoned their boss because on their paycheck they're missing 16 hours pay, and so they're calling to just bring this to their boss's attention, and the boss hangs up on them. So the employee phones back. Continuing to discuss it, the boss hangs up on them again. So rather than calling a third time, the employee drops by the office and gives their boss a written memo about the missing 16 hours pay on their paycheck so that it's in writing. The boss takes the written memo and throws it in the garbage in front of them, along with the saying, I'll look into this later, end quote. 
So, Russell, what's your first first impressions on hearing that story? Well, I, I think there's a there's an element of disrespect there that you just wouldn't listen to what one of your you know uh, an issue that your staff had had, whether it was about sixteen hours missing pay or or whatever it was. You didn't have time. If you didn't have time to deal with it, then could have arranged to speak to them at another point when he did have time, um, and just to simply sort of you know crumple up a memo and just throw it in the garbage and say I'll look at that later and then then not not do it um and I don't know the individual may still be sitting here waiting for their missing 16 hours of power for pay for for, for whatever I, I I know um we don't we don't know any more about this but I just think it was a, when I when I read it it was just like this seems to be just a, a bit of a douche you know it's a a, a lack of res- a lack of respect for somebody and just I'll, I'll throw that over there. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, that 16 hours might not manage, matter to the manager. They might be on a very large, you know, six-figure salary. But to the member of staff, it probably did matter. So, you didn't, you know, you, you're probably have no doubt issued something in the past saying, you know, employees are our most important resource and my door's always open and those other sort of, some of those bullshit bingo uh, management sayings that we were talking about in a previous podcast. But when it comes down to it, people are looking at, well, how do you behave on a day-in, day-out basis? And you can have whatever values you like written up on the wall. But if you're not displaying that on a day-to-day basis, this is the sort of thing that people remember. And I love the fact that you've used both the word bullshit and douche in uh, the same same response in <laughs> here on the uh, I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. We're really living up to some of the feedback that we've received that they want us to incorporate more swearing. So let's effing go for it. I think you're, you're, you're really taking the bull by the effing horns there, Russell. Well done. The, well, uh, I, I, I've taken that to heart when people said there, was, there wasn't enough swearing on this. <laughs> you certainly we have. Better, I think we better I, try and do something about it. <laughs> I think that's fabulous. Well done. Well done, Russell. Um, but the the, you know, I think one of the other things that we're seeing in this story here is, is the reason it seems to me that this feels so disrespectful and so cringeworthy is because it's about money, right? And it's there's so many things that are can be a trigger for people, and money is usually at the top of the list for so many people. And it really... I, I see, feel like I've heard this from a number of people in the past month alone, that is that you, you don't... You don't fuck with money, right? And you, when, when it comes to either paying people or paying what you're owed or borrowing money and not paying it back, you just don't fuck with money, right? And the, if, if you, there is no faster way to break trust in a relationship than around money. And it's one of the things that I can say is never forgiven. So one of the stories that I heard this week, which this is more on a personal level rather than in a workplace relationship, but my wife told me the story that I had never heard before. I, I knew that her father and her uncle were estranged for most of their lives and hadn't spoken to each other for most of their lives. But I only just discovered this month when my wife tells me the story that years ago, so this is going back now almost um, 50 years, when their uh, father moves to Canada, and then a couple of years later from the old country, the uh, brother moves to Canada, borrows $100 from, um, from my wife's father, this gentleman's brother, and never pays it back. And this created the rift. The, uh, the two brothers never spoke again. The because as far as Rita's father was concerned, you don't fuck with money. That's where the greatest piece of respect lies, 
right? And so, and crossing that line, crossing that boundary, crossed a kind of threshold for him that uh, a kind of a point of no return. If I can't trust you with that to pay me back, if I can't trust you to honor your word when it comes to uh, money, and keep in mind, in the 1960s, $100 was a lot of money right? Especially for a pair of new immigrants coming to the country. Then if, if I can't trust you with money, especially what it would then be a large amount, then I cannot trust you to honor your word in any way. Now, we can imagine that because there's brothers, that there's probably a lot of other history involved there. But I feel as if I've heard this story repeated in a number of different different ways. Uh, I yesterday, two days ago, was working with clients who told me uh, something similar, that they uh, they were working in the construction industry, and the it's a family-run business, and the president and father of the uh, gentleman who's telling the story talks about, I, I can't believe that you order supplies from that company. That company screwed me out of $100 50 years ago, and I can't believe that you, st- that you are buying your products from that company. They're, they're not trustworthy. So it's 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 funny how like when you cross that line for a lot of people, that's a grudge that they can hold for a long time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And if if you remember, one of the things when um, we started working together, which was must be what sort of six seven years ago now, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, and when we came up with our sort of um, you know, memorandum of agreement of how we would work and how we would profit share we were quite deliberate about making sure that we would discuss and agree this when there was no money on the table. Because at the time, we hadn't earned any money or anything we'd done together. So we put that arrangement in place, and you know, it, it has worked, served us well over the years because it's a lot easier uh, in, a, in that setting to make that agreement when there's nothing on the table than when you're sitting there with five, $15,000 on the table or more. You know, when you want to agree what the percentage share is or what the royalty is going to be on the particular project. And then, you know, you know, we know that we need trade secrets here, but on a different couple of different projects, we've got different profit sharing, depending on, you know, perhaps where the original idea generated in or, who you know, who'd been working on the project more than the other. Um, but that was all done, if you remember, before we ever, there was ever a cent. Um, sitting there. And I, I've always been grateful for that because I think it's a lot more difficult to have that type of conversation when there's money already involved because then we're already starting, you know, there's a tendency to be, well, you know, people are a bit more cagey or, you know, they can, you can start to get some more real feeling. And um, when I've spoken to other uh, consultants who have similar thing, if they've had problems, it's typically because they've not sorted these things out at the beginning in a similar way that, that we've done. I agree. And now that we are making literally hundreds of dollars in a single year, it's it's not there's no point of friction anymore. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, 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 COVID. Yeah. That's what I said. Uh, that's, you know, and you know, when I think back on my theater career as well, I can't I, I can't tell you how many projects fell apart because of money and how it wasn't organized in advance. And this often happens, especially in the at the the DIY level. Uh, so often, and there there are dozens of stories of groups of collectives of actors who work on a on, on a collectively created piece for something like the Fringe Festival, like like the Edmonton Fringe Festival, say, which is a you know, fairly large Fringe Festival. It's the largest in North America. It's the uh, second largest in the world. And um, so big audiences. And when you have a hit, you have a hit. 
And so they would have a hit and there would be that there was a lot coming through. And there was one person who had been assigned the role of playwright and they're getting a whole bunch of the revenues and they're invited to do a remount and do a tour. And the tour fell apart because the rest of the cast felt, well, we've also contributed to the script. You may have had the original idea, but we contributed to the script. We should be getting a share of the royalties. And the playwright's like, no, I mean, I it's my idea. It's my script. And then and that, at that point, the whole thing just begins to dissolve and nobody can settle on it to the point where then everybody shoots themselves in the foot and they cancel the tour. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you, we, you know, we, could, we could probably go on. There are numerous stories where, where that comes down, but I think it sort of heightens people's awareness when it comes down to, um, to finances, as you say, and whether that's uh, you know, 16 hours worth of pay or it's a million dollars. Um, you know, it, it has can have some far-reaching consequences. And that's what became really useful for us was that we adapted the theater model of uh, using a royalty arrangements, and that's what worked out really well for us. And so we'd more than, be more than happy to talk about that with others at a later date, because uh, I have shared that with other consultants who found that, like, oh, that's brilliant. I really like the way that it breaks down into in, into royalty payments and percentages and stuff like that, something that we've learned from the arts, which I think is, is, is a lovely reversal. It's so often that we think the arts has to learn from business, and it's nice to think that it can come the other way around. Oh, Let's yeah. look at our fourth story, Russell. Shall Absolutely. we move on to story number yeah. four here? So here we have um, someone, we, we've had a story from an office environment, a story from a retail environment. This comes from the restaurant industry. So here we have someone in a restaurant. Uh, their former boss sent a picture of my employment papers to our work group chat. My boss sent it because he couldn't, quote, recognize my signature and was asking the employees to figure out whose signature it was. And yet, says the, says the person who submitted, I have the most identifiable signature you've ever seen. And to compound the transgression, the, the, the photo of the papers that the boss sent around to other employees had this individual's uh, social insurance number on it. So there's, uh, there's our story, Russell. Uh, take it away. What's your, what's your response, Russell? What's your first hit? <laughs> um, late laziness. You know, I, I think that's just a, my initial reaction when I when I was told that story was that yeah, you know, it was just being effing lazy. You know, if you if you if you can't recognise who it is, you know, it's not as if on this type of um, this type of restaurant environment that these people weren't going to be in regularly. That if you who that you could ask somebody, and you know, so I think there's, there's sort of lazy laziness again. I think there's a bit of lack of respect there. We're just on. I'm going to put that out on on social media to everybody to ask without really understanding what you've just put out there, um, which is somebody's social insurance number and their personal details and what they're getting paid and all this, um, which you shouldn't be sharing with uh, other employees anyway. Um, certainly not without the individual's permission. Um, so it, it just sort of came to struck me. I mean, it was just c- laziness, couldn't be bothered. It'd be just easier if I send this. Somebody else does, tells me what I need to know. And I'm not sure if it's the same person with the 16 hours <laughs> thrown in the bin. I don't know. Um, but it just had that sort of feel to it. Like, you know, this is just a boss who wasn't wasn't diligent in their in in their work. Um, who would take the time to say, "I need to speak to some. I need to speak to find out who this is. Who this is." so that we can get it resolved. I'd rather do it this way. There are other ways, if they had this social insurance number, there's other ways that they could have um, found out who it was. It's probably in their payroll system. And I doubt whether it's like McDonald's that they've got so many people. And if it was, they've got HR they could ask. So just to sit out on WhatsApp, um, it's just laziness, um, just showing they couldn't be bothered. 
I, it's interesting that you, um, uh, I find it generous that you call it laziness, Russell, because I had, uh, my first take on reading this was that it was vindictive, was that this was somebody who was, who was putting it out as a, uh, like, as a, if you can't be bothered to fill out the form properly, well, here, I'm going to punish you by posting this on, on, um, on, on whatever social media platform this was or whatever group chat this was. Although in, in retrospect, I see that it's, uh, I see your point of view that it's, that it's uh, laziness, but you know, I, and then, so when I read it again, in that context, I kind of wonder the, the, it also strikes me that it's, it's not just laziness. It could also be busyness, right? We're in an environment, I think, where, where everyone is so overwhelmed, where people are so busy, where people have so much on their plates that we, so you, you had, I'm picking up on your phrase that you had said the, the individual, the manager had said, well, it's just easier if I just post it here and get it done and get it resolved. But here, so I could see how somebody would be like, it's going to take me too much time. I've just got this in front of me and oh, here, I'll just do it this way. Because there's so much pressure on them to get things moving and to keep things moving. Um, things are moving quite quickly. Certainly in the restaurant industry, we know that things have moved quite quickly. And we can also perhaps see that there's a lack of manager training. No one has taught this person um, the issues around privacy and issues around sharing and what's allowed to be shared and what's not to be shared. So there may be uh, issues around either the sense that the, the person is busy trying to, you know, probably trying to do the job of like three people. What used to be the job of three people now have all been downsized into one job. But secondly, the company itself uh, doesn't have the time or uh, wherewithal to train someone in how to do such things properly, um, nor is there anybody else in the organization that can properly coach this individual and in, that they can turn to to ask such questions of. So I, 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 think, you're, I think you're probably, probably, probably right. And again, I, 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 I do know the individual who... who um, share that story with us and where where they were referring to, and I think you you've hit the nail on the head in those last two points. You know, um, you know whether whether it's vindictive, whether it's laziness, busyness. I think we could probably debate that. Um, but I think you've got managers there in a in a and it is a fast food restaurant hasn't really been given, isn't that much more experience than the people working there, hasn't been given the training, hasn't been told what the do's and don'ts are, hasn't been given the coaching that they could on this because that's really not what the the, the, the folks running that particular um, franchise are interested in. You know, they're really, that it's about, you know, come on, get people in, serve them, let's make a profit. They're not looking to develop the management skills of the person managing that particular restaurant. Um, and you know that's not uncommon. You know we've come across this with with um, you know many prospective clients or people that we think should be clients, but sort of say, well, why would I invest money in this? Because it's a cost. But what they're missing out with is, yeah, okay, you invest even in something like a half day's basic fundamentals of of, of supervision training, but you're going to stop these type of issues coming up because people now know, even if it's just the basics of what they're supposed to do, how you process A, B, and C, how you're supposed to interact with people, how you're supposed to deal with issues. These are the sort of mini, you know, sort of case studies that perhaps we would throw in some of our training and ask new supervisors, what would you do in that situation? You've got this information, you don't know who the person is, you know, and give them a you know, multiple choice. One is put it on the group chat. How many people would say, yes, I'd do that? And then you can have the conversations to why that wouldn't be a good idea. So, I, I think, yeah, all, all the things that we mentioned, there might be some busyness, there might be some laziness, perhaps there's a bit of vindictiveness. But I think underpinning is somebody doesn't know, they don't know what they don't know, and there isn't the training invested um, 
at a supervisory level. Um, and you've probably worked as, as I have in that sort of fast food bar restaurant industry. Um, no disrespect intended to the people there, but often the turnover of staff is fairly high. And, you know, people haven't always got when you've got a good manager, you can tell when you've got poor managers, you can also you can also tell um, in terms of the, the, the service that you're getting um, for customers and, and the impact it has on their on their team members as well. Was this your daughter that submitted the story? This sounds like the kind of this kind of sounds like the kind of thing that might have happened to your daughter working at Tim Hortons or something like it, that. It, it isn't, yeah. She doesn't work. <laughs> no, I, I, um, now it isn't, but it is one of her friends. Aha! Uh, aha! Okay, I'm getting close. Getting close. Good guess. All right. Um, but, but again, okay. you know, young, 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 you know, young uh, college-aged employees, supervisor who is only a few years older than them, maybe early twenties. So not somebody who's had a lot of experience of, of dealing with with any any of the. And I think this individual could probably give us several other stories of this particular manager of things that you're like. That's not what a that's what a supervisor should be doing. So. Uh, Oh, right. Well, we'll look forward to those in upcoming episodes then. Yes, uh, yeah. I'll have to ask them to share some more of them, yeah. Uh, well, so let's go to our last story. This is our, our, our fifth story here. So this is in the, um, this is again in the service industry. This time we're in a salon. So, uh, and I can't tell from the story whether this is like a hair salon or an aesthetic salon where they do nails and makeup and things. So just salon, just generically. But so this individual worked for in a, in a corporate setting. So it's like a, a corporate salon. So, uh, you know, perhaps a, a chain or a larger, larger salon, certainly not a, yeah. uh, a mom and pop organization. And they worked there for over a year where the manager was so unprofessional that the manager didn't tackle any issues that arose. And they allowed the stylists that worked under her rule to, to roost, so to speak. And they, so to the point where she didn't have any respect for them. Um, she, this, the writer has called the, uh, these coworkers a pack of wolves. So this group of women had been there for 10 years in this salon and the district manager only came once a month. Ultimately, the district manager hired the person who submitted this uh, letter as a stylist and another woman as the assistant manager. But the leader of the pack of these, uh, the, the, the women who'd been there for like 10 years, had uh, herself applied for that position. And even though she'd been there for 10 years, the corporate headquarters had hired outside of the salon. So, of course, the pack treated these two individuals, the woman who submitted and also the assistant manager, they treated them very badly from day one. And the woman who said, person who submitted the story didn't understand right away, but it was eventually so bad that the person who'd been hired as the new assistant manager ended up quitting. And even the person who submitted the story ended up leaving soon afterwards. So there's our story, Russell, our fifth and final story set in this corporate salon. What was your first response when you read this story, Russell? Well, I, I thought it was, it was a, a good example of where you had... Um, a group of employees, and she uses the phrase, you know, rule the roost, where they're sort of allowed to dictate what happens, and the manager, for whatever reason, doesn't get to grips with, again, some um, be behaviours that are not conducive to a good working environment. So from, from re re reading through this a couple of times, it looked like you have that group of individuals who've been there for some time they're the ones who really run the salon the manager um isn't there enough if to see if they are there they sort of let them get on with what they're doing um and it had a visions to me a little bit like the sort of uh, you know junior high when the pupils are left 
unsupervised and you see sort of bullying take place because everybody else is out of the room and no one's keeping an eye on what's going on. And this was more in a corporate setting, but you sort of had that sort of bullying type behavior where two people's lives who were just brought in, knew nothing about, you know, just came in from outside, um, but were treated in a really shabby way by their co-workers. Both of them end up leaving and management did nothing about it. Um, if they were aware of it, just chose to do nothing and just let it fester and go on. And as we both know, how um, destructive that type of um, culture can be in an organisation, particularly when it goes un- goes unchecked. Um, and it's that sort of culture within a culture, isn't it, that we that we see periodically. Yeah, and you know we see it more than periodically. I'd, I'd propose that we see it quite often. You know that um, the, the there's the phrase to describe uh, organizational culture or corporate culture that a culture is quote the way we do things around here, right? And so in, in a positive sense, that can be the way we do things around here. We treat each other respectfully. We treat the customers. Um, we make the customers our highest priority. We we you know we do this. We do that. That's the way we do things around here. And then of course everything in life has a flip side, and this story gives us that flip side. The way we do things around here has been determined by the culture itself and not by management. And in fact, management is kind of has clearly abdicated responsibility for the quote the way we do things around here, and has left that up to the culture to 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 manifest and to create itself. You know, and I think one of the other expressions that I often use is that if you don't intentionally create your culture of your organize of your company, then your culture will create your company for you. And that, generally speaking, isn't the way you want to go. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Ken. I think why I was saying, I was thinking sort of, you know, sometimes we see this happen. Sometimes we see that that culture created by itself unintentionally, you know, not, not deliberately set from, from management. And it can be positive because you've got some, you know, you've got the right people there with the right attitude and it sort of creates, you know, they create a positive culture despite what management may or not do. But, you know, I certainly take your point and we see this here where, um, the chances of it going off the rails are a lot greater when you're not having at least a handle on what you're wanting the culture to be. Um, and I know some people have uh, companies have a lot more um, overt, you know, driven top down. Some more try to have it sort of evolve bottom bottom up or a combination of the two. Um, but there's no intention to it. And I think you know that that that's that, that's what gets you from what you were saying. There's no intention to it, and you let people just. Um, yeah, well, they sort of like the, the lunatics run the asylum used to be a saying that came up, and I think that's what you've seen happen happen there. Um, and it, it lays it open to um, you know bullying type behaviour, harassment, all these things tend to happen when you have uh, people left to themselves, their own devices, without being given the manager knowing that things are going to be working as they should be. It's fine to take a hands off approach. But you have to be confident that the people are going to, you know, behave and conduct their business in a way that is the way you want that the company would want them to do it. And the story really does feel like a bit of the uh, the Lord of the Flies, doesn't it? it? Really does feel like they've been left to their own devices on a desert island, and their uh, pack of wolves is the description here, tearing one another apart. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a is a common theme actually as we've been going through these that that that, that, I'm, that I'm seeing, uh, and one is it's. It's showing often what happens when you give somebody a management role and you say, hey, Ken, I must use you as an example. Hey, Ken, you know, you're really good 
as a hairstylist, why don't you manage other hairstylists? You're really good um, as a server in our restaurant. Why don't you manage other servers? You're really good selling, you know, widgets on the shop floor. Why don't I get you to be manage other widget sellers? And this idea that often people are promoted into a managerial role because they're good at the job that they do um, in the nuts and bolts of the other front line job, but not necessarily because they are a good, potentially good leader or manager. And then we sort of hope by osmosis that everything is going to work out and the person is going to be fine and, uh, you know, there'll be no problems. And as we see in these examples, I think part of the problem in each of these is that the manager doesn't necessarily have the full range of competencies we they would need to be fully effective. Um, and hasn't had them developed or supported to be able to do it. Um, and, you know, and the work that, that we look to do with people is to, to fill in those gaps. So I've always been keen on, why don't we look to get people ready for that role right at the beginning or before they even better, before they take up the role, don't wait for 20 years and then say, they're really not very effective, are they? Um, why don't we send them for some training? <laughs> Absolutely. And Russell, I must thank you um, because unfortunately I'm not good at any of those things. I can't actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a shitty hairstylist. I've never worked in a restaurant and, um, and I'm not particularly good at selling widgets either. So I, but I do appreciate the confidence you have uh, in me. And uh, so thank you for that, Russell. And thanks for uh, gathering these worst boss stories from our listeners, Russell. This brings us to the end of our, of our first segment on worst boss stories. We're going to do another one down the road. So listeners, if you're still with us and you're still listening, we want you to send us your worst boss stories. We know you have them and we want you to send them to us. As you can tell from this episode, we're more than happy to anonymize your story and keep them anonymous unless you are a friend of Russell's daughter, in which case we're going to out you and the franchise that you worked at. Um, but other than that, we're we're going to keep you anonymous. So please do write in, share your worst boss stories with us, and we'll look forward to sharing those at a future episode down the road. In the meantime, if, you're, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast so you can get the updates delivered straight to your inbox the moment they come out so you don't miss a single episode and if you've been interested in what you've been hearing then do take a look at our book i need to effing talk to you available at amazon or at our any of our other online resources at i need to effing talk to you.com okay thanks for listening folks and thanks again to our contributors for their bad uh, worst boss stories and let's see if we can consign these uh, these efforts to uh, history if we keep working together on it and we'll speak to you soon